I love that guy. He just... That's us. That's the AG Church. We're just a little country church that is trying to pastor our community by building a bridge of love over which the truth of God is carried. And President Hagen, thanks so much for the invitation to come today. I'm, I, I'm sure your students and faculty are probably getting tired of people coming in here and saying what a great job you're doing here. I'm going to be very boring and add my voice to the, to the chorus. Although I might be able to give you a, a slightly different perspective of your fearless leader because when he was out and was visiting us in, in August, you know, it, it, it's August, and I'm the type of guy that I wear clothes until they're falling apart, you know, drive cars, use things. I'm cheap, so I just will do things until you run them into the ground. So I was wearing my favorite pair of shoes that had, you know, the sole had kind of separated from the top so they flap when you walk. But, but you know, the fact is, you know, it's summer, it's Wilmer, you know, who cares? So, uh, but apparently he did because at one point he just, and he said this so kindly, but he said, listen, we can't have one of our senior pastors walking around in shoes like this. So he reaches into his pocket. He pulls out this roll of bills, takes off the rubber band, hands it to me and says, here, put this around your shoe. <laughs> what a guy. What a guy! I just, you know what? I made that. You know I made that up. I just, uh, that's a lie. Well, here's what's not a lie. It, it, it's great to be with you, although I must say that I do have mixed feelings being back on a college campus because when I was here, as, as, not here, but when I was in college as a student, um, I didn't really distinguish myself, unlike my wife. And she loves to remind me that she got, in college, she got all A's and one B. And finally, I got sick of it, and I said, hey, listen, I only got one B. You don't hear me bragging about it, do you? <laughs> so, yeah, fill in the gaps. Uh, just a little bit about myself really quickly. I came into ministry later in life. Actually, I was in my late 30s. Before that, I was a counselor with uh, troubled kids, and then I was the director of juvenile court for Charleston County in South Carolina. And then I was an administrator for the Hopkins School District here in Minnesota. And it's then when I got saved at Bloomington Assembly, it's now Cedar Valley Church. I was on staff there for 11 years. And then I've been at Wilmer as the senior pastor for 16 and a half years. And after all that, I guess I, I, if I have one word of wisdom for those of you who might be considering a pastoral career path, it would be this. Don't get in unless you can't stay out. Okay? But if you get in, it's worth it. Every day I get to live a life of purpose and significance. It doesn't always go well, but those are constant. And, and sometimes it's even fun. Um, the, the video that we just watched, when they came out and filmed that the day they came, we were having a water baptism uh, service. And, and the way we do water baptisms is we, uh, we film everybody ahead of time, then we show the, the, the video during service, and then we just do the baptism one right after the other during worship. And it's, it's a big party. People are clapping and cheering and singing. It's a lot of fun. So that day, we had 25 people that had signed up. Uh, for, for baptism. And I felt a nudge earlier in the week. Now, I know some churches, other churches have done this. We'd never done this before. But uh, 
I had the staff go out to Goodwill and get a lot of extra clothes and undergarments and stuff. And so at the end of the service, we've already baptized the 25. I said, listen, I know there's people still sitting here today. And every time we do this, you squirm because you are, you are a walking contradiction. You are an unbaptized follower of Jesus Christ. You've accepted the message. And since you've accepted the message, you still haven't been baptized. This is your moment. This is your time. You can escape the pain of making the video. And, uh, you know, I'm going to count to three. When I count to three, I want you to get up, walk to the back we have people there they're going to help you get changed and we're going to uh, baptize you so I had no idea it was going to happen and I'm I'm insecure enough that I'm thinking you know what if nobody gets up what if I'm counting you know nine ten Bueller Bueller that's good use the 80s reference to, yeah never mind okay <laughs> So anyway, I just said, one, two, three. You know, I saw people start to get up. That was good enough for me, so I left. We started baptizing. By the time we were done between the two services, we baptized another 41 people. We baptized 66 people that day. I got home and noticed I, had, I now had webbed feet. I'd been in the tank for so long. In fact, we had so many people and, and, and needed to get done that I wasn't able to do what I normally do. When I baptize, I usually uh, take people back and I hold them down uh, under the water until I see them form the word tithe. Okay, <laughs> then, then I just pull them back. Now, I mean, you teach that here, right? I mean, that's scriptural, right? Anyway, we're, we're having another water baptism service in two weeks. We have, I think, 39 people that are signed up, and it's just going to be hooting. And out of that 39, many of them are new Christians who don't know anything about anything spiritually. I mean, seriously. I mean, they think I'm screwing up when I say Job instead of Job. So I'm, I'm, I'm always looking to convey the, the power of the gospel and the, uh, uh, the depth of God's love in simple ways that may stick. And I, and I thought just for a little bit this morning, I'd like to share one of those ways with you, and, and I'd like to use these two chairs. Pretty simple, okay? So in the beginning, God created man to have fellowship with him and reflect his glory. But, but man in the garden sinned and turned away from God. As a result, the world became broken and man became subject to futility and death. But God so loved his creation, he didn't want us to be subject to futility and death. So God becomes human, becomes real, becomes Emmanuel, God with us. So here's a woman who has lived her life going from man to man, married five times, now living with a man who is not her husband, yet still never finding the love she longed for. And what happens? Jesus comes, and he sits down beside her at a well, and he says, I'm the water of life. I will love you. Here's a man who, for the sake of ambition and greed, becomes a tax collector. He's in collusion with the occupying Romans. He oppresses his fellow countrymen. He's shunned as a traitor. No one will eat with him. No one will be his friend. And what happens? Jesus comes. He sees the tax collector up in a tree, and he says, Zacchaeus, come down. I will go with you. I will eat with you. Today, salvation has come to your home. Here's a woman who's been caught in adultery. The religious establishment wants to has condemned her and wants to stone her. And when she's brought into the presence of Jesus and thrown at his feet, he says, let he who is without sin 
cast the first stone. And then he kneels beside her and he says, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Here's a man who's so captured by the powers of darkness that he's inhabited by a legion of demons. He, he no longer seems human. He's driven from his village. He, he lives in the cemetery. He doesn't wear clothes. He cuts himself. He's just become a madman. Everybody is afraid to go near him. And yet here comes Jesus sailing across the Sea of Galilee saying, I will come to you and I will set you free. And he casts out the demons and the darkness. So the man is clothed and in his right mind sitting with Jesus, sitting with God. You see, Jesus lives with us and for us. He lives as we were intended to live, in full relationship with the Father, never turning away, always doing his will. But at the end of his life, Jesus is put to death, and in that moment, God the Father does the unthinkable, the impossible. He takes all of our sin, and he puts it on Jesus. Jesus experiences the full wrath of God, and he descends to the grave. But Jesus is also the resurrection and the life. In the book of Revelation, Jesus says, I was dead. And behold, I am alive forever and ever. So now each one of us has the opportunity to be in fellowship with him, to reflect his glory, and to experience the grace and power of God. You see, God created a perfect world. Sin broke it, Jesus fixed it, and we can receive it. We receive it by acknowledging, admitting our need for God's grace, by, by not overestimating ourselves and underestimating our constant need for a savior. I'm not just talking about the moment of salvation, but on a daily basis. And I, I would imagine even at your relatively young ages that you're discovering just how difficult it can be to keep your seat in this position. Because we live in a broken world, don't we? And there's so many things that conspire to undermine our faith. When you think about the, the, the disappointments that we suffer or the, or the failures or the, or the loss or the, or the pain or the fear or the temptation and all of a sudden, how did we get here? But we did. You know, and that last one, temptation, boy, that's... That's a hard thing to discern sometimes because it's, it's, the agenda and the motives are often so hidden or, or disguised. And uh, I don't believe that the, that the first goal of temptation is to entice us into to engage in the behavior that's attracting us. See if you can follow me on this. I, I think that the primary goal of temptation is to invite us to forget who we are. You know, uh, uh, after World War II, the, the United States entered into what is called the Cold War with Russia. I think, actually, we're back in another 
Cold War because what happens is that open conflict is replaced with subterfuge and, and espionage. And so uh, what happened is that the Soviets would approach uh, members of the FBI, the CIA, the military to enlist them as spies, but they, they, they wouldn't ask them to, to do anything drastic at first. They wouldn't ask initially for top secret information. Instead, they would ask for something simple like an office telephone directory. Now, that's no big deal because it's already public information, but the, but the thrill... And, and the money would, would hook the Americans so that they were interested and willing to do it again. So the next time they'd ask for a file and then for something confidential and, and finally something that was classified top secret would be passed along. And that's how temptation often begins. Not with the face of evil, but with the air of innocence. Not to entice us to engage in whatever behavior might be attracting us, but to invite us to forget we are. See, the Soviets wanted those people to forget they were American. And Satan wants us to forget that we are God's children, created in his image. John 1.12 says, to them he gave the right to become children of God. Now there's a, there's a horrible statistic out there. It's been floating out there for years. And I haven't seen it change, so I'm going to assume it's still true. Um, and, and it conveys the challenge of ministry, and it's this. There are 1,700 people leave the ministry every month. 1,700. Now, uh, some of them may leave for appropriate reasons, but the vast majority, and that's why they put this out there, are leaving because of unfortunate circumstances. And I think at the root of those circumstances is that they forgot who they were and whose they were. I'm sure most of them never thought it would happen to them, even while it was happening to them. And, and you know, I heard a story once that I thought illustrates so well how temptation kind of draws us into the cords of its net. And, and I'm wondering, would you like to hear it? Please say yes, because otherwise I got nothing, okay? All right, just listen to this story. There, there once was a great and mighty king whose land was terrorized by a crafty dragon like a massive bird of prey, the scaly beast delighted in ravaging villages with his fiery breath. Hapless victims ran from burning homes only to be snatched into the dragon's jaws or talons. Those devoured instantly were deemed more fortunate than those who were carried back to the dragon's lair to be devoured at his leisure. The king led his sons and knights into many valiant battles against the dragon. And one day... Riding alone in the forest, one of the king's sons heard his name purred soft and low. And in the shadows of the ferns and trees curled among the boulders lay the dragon. The creature's heavy-lidded eyes fastened on the prince and the reptilian mouth stretched into a friendly smile. Don't be alarmed, said the dragon. Now, just... Imagine the dragon's voice. It's kind of a cross between Benedict Cumberbatch and, and Sean Connery. I mean, it's awesome. All right? He says, don't be alarmed, said the dragon. I, I am not what your father thinks. 
Well, what are you then? asked the prince, warily drawing his sword. I am pleasure, said the dragon. Ride on my back and you will experience more than you ever imagined. Come now, I have no harmful intentions. I seek a friend, someone to share flights with me. Have you never dreamed of flying, never longed to soar in the clouds? Visions of soaring high above the forested hills drew the prince hesitantly from his horse, and the dragon unfurled one great webbed wing to serve as a ramp to his ridged back, and and between the spiny projections, the prince found a secure seat, and then the creature snapped his powerful wings twice and, and launched them into the sky, and the prince's apprehension melted into awe and exhilaration, and from then on, he met the dragon often, but secretly for how could he tell his father or his brothers or the knights that he had befriended the enemy the prince felt separate from them all their concerns were no longer his concerns even even when he wasn't with the dragon he spent less and less time with those he loved and more time alone the skin on the prince's leg became calloused from gripping the ridged back of the dragon and his hands grew rough and hardened and he began wearing gloves to hide the malady. After many nights of riding, he discovered that scales were actually growing in the backs of his hands as well. With dread, he realized his fate if he were to continue and so he determined that he would return to the dragon no more. But a week later, He again sought out the dragon, having been tormented with desire. And so it transpired many times over. No matter what his determination, the prince eventually found himself pulled back as if by the cords of an invisible web. Silently, patiently, the dragon always waited. One cold moonless night their excursion became a foray against a sleeping village and torching the thatched roofs with fiery blasts from his nostrils the dragon roared with delight as his victims fled from their burning homes the prince closed his eyes tightly in an attempt to shut out the carnage usually then in the in the pre-dawn hours when the prince crept back from his dragon tryst the the road outside his father's castle remained empty but not tonight Terrified refugees streamed into the protective walls of the castle. The prince attempted to slip through the crowd and close himself in his chambers, but some of the survivors stared and pointed at him. He was there, one woman cried out. I saw him on the back of the dragon, and others nodded their heads in angry agreement. Horrified, the prince saw that his father, the king, was in the courtyard, and he was holding a bleeding child in his arms. The king's face mirrored the agony of his people as his eyes found the princess. His son fled, hoping to escape in the night, but the guards apprehended him like they would just a common thief. They brought him to the great hall where his father sat solemnly on the throne. And the people on every side railed against the prince. Banish him! He heard one of his own brothers angrily cry out. Burn him alive! Other voices shouted. As the king rose from his throne, the crowd fell silent in expectation of his decree. The prince, who could not bear to look into his father's face, stared at the flagstones of the floor, 
Take off your gloves and your tunic, the king commanded. The prince obeyed slowly, dreading to have his metamorphosis uncovered before the kingdom. Was, was his shame not already enough? He had hoped for a quick death without further humiliation. Sounds of revulsion ripped through the crowd at the sight of the prince's thick, scaled skin. The king strode toward his son, and the prince steeled himself, expecting a, a backhanded blow from his father, although he had never been struck before by his father. Instead, his father embraced him and, and wept as he held him tightly. In shocked disbelief, the, the prince buried his face against his father's shoulder. Do you wish to be freed from the dragon, my son? Oh, the prince answered in despair, I, I wished it many times, but there is no hope for me. Not alone, said the king. You cannot win against the dragon alone. Father, I am no longer your son. I am half beast sobbed the prince. But his father replied, my blood runs in your veins. My nobility has been stamped deep within your soul. And with his face still hidden tearfully in his father's embrace, the prince heard the king instruct the crowd, the dragon is crafty. And some fall victim to his wiles and some to his violence. There will be mercy for all who wish to be freed. Who else among you has ridden the dragon? The prince lifted his head to see someone emerge from the crowd. To his amazement, he recognized his older brother. One who had been lauded throughout the kingdom for his many battles against the dragon and, and for his incredibly good deeds. And then others came, some weeping, some hanging their heads in shame. The king embraced them all. This is our most powerful weapon against the dragon, he said. Truth. No more hidden flights. Alone we cannot resist him. We are better together. Now, why do I share that story here of all places? Because you would think that a, a dragon would find it difficult to find writers in a Bible school or in a church. I mean, that would be the hope. But he also knows if he can get your attention, he can get your action. And if he gets your action, who are you going to tell? I mean, you're going to feel just like the king's son, aren't you? You're going to be embarrassed by your behavior. It's too shameful to talk about. And so you engage in this conflict alone, in secret, as the dragon, dragon glides stealthily among you, empowered by your silence, until you forget 
who and whose you are. You know, I, I don't know anybody that hasn't heard the dragon's voice. But some of you in a, in a crowd this size, some of you, instead of taking that voice captive, you're listening. You're responding. You're watching things that you shouldn't. You're doing things that fall outside the boundary of God. You may have just this unhealthy habit that's getting the best of you. I have a, a good friend who's also in college, a straight-A student. I, I like to hang out with smart people, you know. But, but this person developed an eating disorder that she thought she could handle on her own. And she ended up missing a semester in treatment. And the reason is she was just so afraid of what people would have thought of her if she, because she was, here's the good student, she was the lead in the play, she accompanied the, the choir on the piano, what would they thought of her if she told people that she was struggling? See, I get it. The, the fear of discovery is, is greater than the desire for deliverance. It, it, it takes courage to do what the older brother did the one who wasn't caught but who stepped forward risking reputation and respect because he realized something he realized that he was becoming the person he was tempted to be and not the person God created him to be and that can happen to each one of us as well See, courage, it's not the absence of fear. It's the judgment that something else is more important than fear. Courage is the belief that God is bigger and more important than whatever you're afraid of. Because listen, when it comes to sin, I hope you'll take this to heart. When it comes to sin, I used to tell my kids this all the time, the first price you pay is always the cheapest. When they did something wrong, I'd say, don't lie to me. If you lie to me, it'll only make it worse. Or if you cover it up, or if it takes me all to discover it, it's going to be worse than if you just came right out and said, here's the issue. The first price you pay is always the cheapest. The longer you wait to confess and confront, the higher the cost. But here's the problem. Temptation gives us that false hope that you can sin and get away with it. Man, that's the great lie that sends so many of us spiraling in the wrong direction. It's the, it, 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 it's the lie that the serpent whispered to Eve in the Garden of Eden. Go ahead, you can eat the fruit. You won't die. You can sin and get away with it. And of course they couldn't. And what Adam and Eve suffered was passed on to the rest of humanity so we're experiencing the consequences uh, of their sin now does that seem fair no but that's the point fair and sin don't belong in the same sentence they'll never belong in the same sentence they don't fit together no matter how much we keep trying our sin costs more lasts longer and involves more people than we could ever uh, Expect or imagine. Now for some of you, and I have to admit personally, this is, this is where I get in trouble. The dragon plays with your head. 
he whispers things like, you'll, you know you'll never really belong here. You know that, don't you? You'll never really be accepted. You're not going to have the life that some of these other, you're never going to have the friends that some of these other people have. You're never going to be successful. Who do you think you are? They're lies that become strongholds. You know what a spiritual stronghold is? It's pretty simple. A, 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 a spiritual stronghold is a, is a lie about yourself or, or others or God that is accepted to the point that you begin to build your life around it. See, that's what makes it a stronghold. Strongholds need to be pulled down by the truth. The dragon just loves to build strongholds in our lives. Lives like, I'll never be good enough, or they don't care about me, or, you know, I know God has favorites, but I'm not one of them. Again, the, the dragon, he loves to play, prey on our, on our loneliness, on our, on our isolation, knowing, you know, we're at a point in our society with, with all the ways that we can connect, even though a lot of them really aren't connection with social media and everything else, but we're at a point in society where I think most people would rather confess to an actual crime than admit that they're lonely or that they're not connected with someone. I mean, how do you tell a peer that you're drowning socially, relationally? You don't, and so the dragon is the only voice you hear. No more. Not today, I'm gonna ask you to stand. We're gonna wrap up here pretty quick. If you can just hang in there for a minute. I just want you to stand. I just want you to know today, you can, you can change your course. I mean, maybe, Maybe you've just been listening to the dragon so far, but your resistance is waning. And I, I just want to caution you. That, you know, if the difference between never and once is out here, the difference between once and twice is like this. And maybe you have, in some way, you've surrendered to the siren call of the dragon. I just want you to know, you have not crossed any lines yet that can't be uncrossed. So I, I want to give you, just quickly, I want to give you the opportunity to display a type of courage that's not often seen on a college campus or, or even in a church for that matter. Because what I want to do very quickly, I want to pray for anybody who can relate to struggling with the dragon on, on any level. But here's what you're going to have to do. You're going to have to do what the, what the older brother did and, and take the first step. Because you know what? You can, you can hide in the crowd but what you're doing is basically you're saying yes to the dragon. You're treating him as your friend. And I'll tell you, God doesn't deliver you from your friends. You have to say no to the dragon and yes to God. See, there, there is mercy for all who wish to be free. There, there, there's no condemnation in Jesus Christ. A admitting your struggles doesn't mean you're the only one suffering the dragon. It means that you're someone who has the courage to admit it. At, at our church, we often say this. If we want to see things we've never seen before, we're going to have to do things we've never done before. And for you, this may be one of those things. And you know what? You know who you are because your heart has been pounding in your chest since about halfway through that story. And it's time to 
stop the pounding and start the healing. So if that's you, I just want you to remember what the king said when he embraced those who came forward. He said, this is our most powerful weapon against the dragon. It's truth. No more hidden flights. Alone we cannot resist them. We are better together. And so I'm going to ask you to do something. I'm not going to ask you to come forward this morning. Uh, I thought about that, but I think just for sake of time, here's what I'd like you to do. If that's you this morning, I just want you to raise your hand. I'm not going to ask anybody to bow their heads, close their eyes. We don't need it. This is, this is for you saying, you know what? I've got to struggle. I just want you to raise your hand. I just want to pray for you this morning. Give you a second. Raise your hand if that's you. If you can, if you can relate to anything I've said, if you understand that struggle. Thank you. Hands going up all over here. Okay, here's the next step I'll, I'll want you to take. After, keep your hand up for just a second. Your next step then is to find somebody. Find a friend, find a faculty member, find a counselor, and just say, you know what, today I raised my hand in chapel for this, and here's what's going on. I need help. I need help. If you're next to somebody, put your hands up. If you're next to somebody who has a hand up, would you just lay a hand on them? Let's just make sure that we've got somebody praying for everybody that's here. And Lord God, I pray that you would powerfully remind those with their hands in the air, actually all of us, Lord, but especially those with their hands in the air, that your nobility has been stamped deep within their soul, that that your blood doesn't just wash them clean, it runs through their veins, that they are lovable, they're valuable, they're acceptable, that when Jesus died, our past died. I mean, right up to this very moment, we sever the burdens of the past, the sins of the past, and that past can no longer determine our future. And God, we also sever the assignment of the dragon. We rebuke the lies and expose them to the light and grace of Jesus Christ because these young people are your masterpiece created in Christ Jesus to do good works. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face toward you and give you peace. Would you encourage each other as you leave here? Have a great rest of the day.